Let's open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. You'll find the uh, notes in the bulletin. overcome our technical difficulties. Luke chapter 16, a very familiar story, a very familiar text, and yet in it Jesus provides for us a clear, definitive, striking, memorable, and terrifying example of a theme of divine reversals that's been echoing throughout the entirety of Luke's gospel. We've heard repeatedly, whether it be Mary herself in the Magnificat in chapter 1, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he's exalted the humble. So Mary prophesying about what God has done, what God will do. This is a God who takes the proud and casts them down and exalts the humble. And then, when Jesus is dedicated at the temple, we receive this prophecy from Simeon. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. There are some who are down who will be raised, and some who are down who will be brought down. There are some who are raised who will be brought down. When Jesus began his very ministry in chapter 4, how did he identify himself? What did he identify as his mission to be? But chapter 4, verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So his ministry is to announce good news or gospel. That's the same Greek word we get gospel from the poor, to the oppressed, to the blind, to the lame, to raise them up. And when Jesus began his famous sermon on the plain, how did he begin? But again, emphasizing these reversals. He said in verse 20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. And conversely, woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall weep and mourn. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let me go ahead to chapter 12. This theme is, is all throughout Luke's gospel. I'm just trying to highlight a few passages. And we have the story of the rich fool, the rich man, who has a bumper crop. And in verse 19, he speaks to himself and he says, I will say to my soul, soul. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. God said to him, fool, 
This night your soul is required of you. The things you have prepared, whose will they be? A man appears to be at the pinnacle of opulence, wealth, prosperity, good fortune. He's really a man to be pitied. Then a little further into chapter 14. And I, I alluded to this earlier during communion, but we have the reversal of the parable of the wedding banquet. I mean, we... You see that most clearly, pick it up in verse 23, after those who originally said they would come, come up with excuses, we get again this reversal. The master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled, for I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. The reversal is this, those who are invited, those who, in a sense, had an invitation in their hand, they don't get to come in, they're excluded. And those who are far off, those who were never invited originally, they are brought near. Reversal which sets up the grumbling of the Pharisees in, in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They don't like this reversal. So Jesus tells them two parables. We, we saw that, the parable of the, the shepherd and the 99 sheep, and the one lost, the woman and the lost coin. And then we see the reversal again show up in the parable of the prodigal son. A man has two sons. And yet at the end of the story, one son is being celebrated and feasted over and is inside, and one son is outside, and it's not who you'd expect. The son who, by all accounts, has been faithful. The son who, by all accounts, has done what his father asked. He is the one who is the outsider, the prodigal, the wastrel. He's the one who is kissed, embraced, run to, and brought near. Reversals. Reversals reversals. They've been echoing through Luke's gospel. Jesus saying it clearly in chapter 13, verse 30, behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. And in this parable, and I do believe it's a parable, it may be a true parable. Um, there's a number of Jesus' parables that may be true. There may, in fact, have been a good Samaritan. We don't know. There may, in fact, have been a rich man with a bumper crop. There may, in fact, have been a Pharisee and a publican praying. But the structure, the way this is presented, you can see, is parabolic. Look at verse 1 of chapter 16. There was a rich man. Compare that with verse 19. There was a rich man. It's introduced in largely the same way. And so rather than getting caught up in questions of is this historically real, it may well be. We, with our time, are going to focus on what does Jesus want us to learn from it. We can... Get into some more of that during the ABF time. So we have the rich man, Lazarus, and Father Abraham. And we're going to see clearly this theme of divine reversals. Hinted at, told about, now shown. We've been heard the rich will become poor. The full will become hungry. The poor will be rich. We're going to see it crystal clear right here. We're going to see it crystal clear. Let's read our text, Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Moreover, I'm sorry, Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed by what fell from the rich man's table. 
Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And beside this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. A very familiar passage, and yet a profound one. Check. Oh, there we go. Whoa. And we have hopefully resolved our technical difficulties. A very familiar passage. Two themes are in this. I've highlighted the one, um, the theme of the reversals. The theme that how things are in this life may not reflect how things will be in the next life. The second theme, we'll get to, Lord willing, with time, is the other one that has been introduced just recently. If you remember, Jesus, just before this, told the parable of the shrewd and dishonest manager. Shrewd and dishonest manager who prepared for his future. He prepared to survive judgment by cheating his boss and buying friends who would welcome him on the other side of judgment. And Jesus said, we ought also to be concerned with the judgment that is coming, to, to being well-received on the other side. The Pharisees scoffed at this, and as Jesus rebuked them, when we saw this last week, what does he say in verse 17? It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dog of the law to become void. We're going to see also in this passage the, the power and authority that Jesus ascribes to God's word. So let's dive in our our story, the parable, takes place over three plot points. We'll begin with two separate lives. Two separate lives. And Jesus gives us our two principal characters, at least in the first part of our story, a rich man and Lazarus. And he tells us, both of them, what their clothing, what their food was, and what their abode was. And the contrast could not be greater. They are proximately close. The, the Poor man, Lazarus, is laid at the gate of the rich man. They're, they're yards, hundreds of yards apart, yet in social status, in the way they experienced life, they could not be further apart. So the rich man is first introduced. What did he wear? Purple and fine linen. Purple is the color of kings because the purple dye made from crushed up snails, that's how they make the purple dye, was some of the most valuable and costly. You'll remember that Lydia in, in Acts the seller of purple, and she had a house she could house a church in. Not surprising, she was a merchant in one of the more expensive and opulent dyes. This man wore regal attire. 
And underneath it, fine white linen. I mean, this is the opulence of opulence. To put it in modern vernacular, he's got bling. See, I'm hip. Um, and <laughs> what's Lazarus dressed in? We don't know, but we do know he's covered in sores. Rich man is covered in fine linen, purple robes. He is wearing the most ostentatious, the most opulent dress of his day. Lazarus is covered in sores. Now this is potentially a sign of judgment. The Pharisees would have read it this way. In Deuteronomy 28.35, the Lord promises those who are unfaithful to the covenant, the Lord will strike you on the knees and on the legs with grievous boils, of which you cannot be healed, from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. So we know that disease can be a sign of judgment. We also know from a book like, say, Job, not always. This is a man who would have been an outcast, the Lazarus, the poor man, covered head to toe in sores. Rich man clothed in, in fine regal attire, Lazarus clothed in sores. What they eat? The rich man feasted sumptuously every day, literally in the Greek. He feasted himself. He threw a party for himself, threw a feast. And given his clothing and his dress, one can only imagine that the, the food that he ate would have matched and been equal. He had the best clothes. He ate the best food. He feasted. Every day was a feast for him. Every day was a celebration. What about Lazarus? He longed or desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And by the way, because he was longing for it, it indicates he didn't get it. He had less than table scraps in comparison. So the rich man, feast, sumptuous feast every day. Lazarus, whatever he was surviving on, was such that it would be a step up, significant step up, if he was able to get the table scraps from the rich man's table. Okay, where'd they live? So they ate. Where'd they live? The rich man had some sort of estate or compound that had a gate around it, a porch, and again, in keeping with his dress and the, being able to feast every day, such a man with such wealth and given his desire to show and enjoy his wealth, one can only imagine how large his estate would have been. Where did Lazarus dwell? We don't know where he dwelled. We know he spent his days sitting in front of the gate probably to beg. Somebody having some compassion on him would place him there, throw him down there, and hopefully maybe someone going in and out of this rich man's house might feel some pity for him and help him out. So Jesus gives us their attire, their food, and their abode could not be more different. You couldn't have a more disparate group within the Jewish community on those axes. A rich man and Lazarus, that's two separate lives. And then, the next plot point, they both die. And here we're going to see the other contrast. Well, on one side of death, in huge contrast, on the other side of death, we're going to see another contrast, but this time it's flipped. The reversal takes place. Two separated deaths. Two separated deaths. See, in life, they're separate, but they're only separate in their experience. They're in proximity. They're close to each other. And yet, as Father Abraham explains the situation, a great chasm has been placed. Some third party, God, has separated them in death. This is not chance or happenstance. This is divine purpose. They've been separated. They were separate, now in death they're separated. And here we have 
The poor man died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Now, coming off of the heels of Jesus' parable of the steward, where the exhortation to us is, I tell you, verse 9, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Lazarus is received, has friends. Angels take him and bring him to Abraham, who acts in a very friendly way with him, does he not? Places him in his position of honor at his side which harkens back to Jesus' warning in Luke 13, warning us, warning the Jews of his day to scramble, to strive to enter through the narrow gate. Why? In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So I think we're to take this as Lazarus gets um, the equivalent of a limousine treatment. He gets escorted by angels to the, millenn- the kingdom celebration with Abraham and Isaac and the prophets reclining at table. He has friends on the other side. People welcome him and and escort him and bring him and welcome him in. We see comfort him. What about about the rich man? The rich man's buried and tormented in Hades. We read, The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off. Lazarus at his side. So now added to the distinction of their experience is the distinction of locale. There's this great chasm separating them. And, and part of the reason to suggest that this is a parable is even though there's this great chasm between them, they're able to hold a conversation. And so it's completely flipped. We see perfectly here the rich being poor, those who laughed howling. Those who are poor inheriting the kingdom. Those who are hungry being satisfied. The reversals that Jesus promised in this story are fulfilled. This would be shocking to the Pharisees who understood material wealth as a sign of God's blessing. God must be happy with you. Look how he's prospered you. God must not be happy with you. Who sinned? This man or his mother that he was born blind. This man covered in boils who is poor clearly has done something wrong. Must not have much of a work ethic. And yet, after death, we have the unexpected reversal. Lazarus is honored. The rich man doesn't have a name in this. Notice Abraham has a name. We know his name. Lazarus has a name. We know his name. It means my God will help. The rich man doesn't have a name. He goes into eternity anonymous. And then... We have two denied requests. Two denied requests. So the first part is just showing us this shocking reversal. And that would be shocking enough in and of itself to the Pharisees that Jesus is speaking to. to I mean, to the disciples. No, to the Pharisees. Sorry, to the Pharisees that Jesus is speaking to. He talks back and forth to the Pharisees and the disciples. I even got confused. And now, through this dialogue, we're to get some insight into how he ended up there. 
And we're going to see just the power of the Scriptures and the importance, reinforcing what Jesus has already taught of what we do now, here and now, with our money, with our time, with our actions. So, in verse 24, two denied requests. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So the rich man's first request focuses on himself. First he pleads for himself, then he'll plead for his brothers, but first he's concerned for himself. And notice how he still... He still doesn't get fully this reversal because he still thinks Lazarus is the errand boy. He'll honor Abraham. Notice it's the rich man and the rich man alone who gives him the exalted title, Father Abraham. Jesus just refers to him in the parable as Abraham. Rich man, Father Abraham, send Lazarus. And he's in such anguish that in his mind, I mean, think about the anguish. I mean, we, we, we don't think, I think, long enough of the anguish of hell. That for this man... One drop of water on his tongue is the type of relief he would beg for. Think about the level of pain and anguish you would have to be in with a thought of one drop of water on the tip of a finger on your tongue would just be, oh, I just, that would be heaven. That's what we've got here. Extreme suffering. The request to mercifully send Lazarus to cool his tongue. And, and that word, have mercy on me, rings through Luke, because we've seen that. Remember the prodigal, um, the story, not that we'll get to the prodigal, the story of the, uh, the Good Samaritan. What does the Good Samaritan do when he sees the man beaten on the side of the road? He feels compassion. He does mercy. In the story of the prodigal son, the father sees his son coming. He feels compassion and he runs to him. So we've seen that mercy and compassion are part of God's heart, part of what God honors. This man's crying out, give me mercy. There's no mercy for people after judgment. That time has passed and his request is denied. On what basis? Abraham responds that his sentence is just, the aid is is impossible. His sentence is just, and aid is impossible. Now, Abraham is not pictured here as hard-hearted. Notice even the tenderness in the term. He calls him child. Jesus doesn't want us to think, oh man, that Abraham, he's a hard-hearted jerk. That's not the case at all. Rather, we're to understand that after death, after our money fails, that's it. And where you end up is where you end up, and how things are is how things are, and they don't change, and there's a great divide, no one can cross over, and nothing can be done about it. And so Abraham reminds him, you had money and wealth. What'd you do with it? You spent it on yourself. You feasted yourself. You enjoyed yourself. And to whom much is given, much is required. And so your current status, your current punishment is fitting. Lazarus, likewise, is being comforted. That is fitting as well. But on, moreover, even if, even if there was a desire, if it was possible, there's no way to get across. It's impossible. God has so set things up that there can be no aid from heaven to hell, and there can be no crossing from hell to heaven. 
those who want to think that perhaps after death there can be salvation, that, that love wins, contradict Jesus. Contradict the book of Hebrews. It is written, appointed for men once to die, and then comes judgment. His first request is denied. Abraham says, kindly, child, your sentence is just, and nothing can be done. A great chasm has been set up. That's why I say this is, these are two separated deaths. God now has separated them. The rich man chose to be separate from Lazarus. The rich man chose not to be kind to him. The rich man chose not to give him his food. That, that division was on the rich man. He chose not to invite Lazarus into his home. He chose to have a gate that separated them. But now God has imposed the judgment. And it is final. So which leads to the rich man's second request. The rich man now pleads for his brothers. Now this is striking. We see a picture of a man in hell not wanting others to go there. And don't miss the point of this dialogue. Abraham and the rich man both, and I think us, would have the same goal. The rich man does not want his brothers to go to hell. He wants them to repent. And Abraham appears perfectly on board with that. Yes, Abraham too does not want the rich man's five brothers to go to hell. He wants them to repent. I think we would want that to happen. Pause and think about that for a moment. The people in hell don't want you to join them there. Sometimes you'll hear someone because they have a loved one who, who perished apart from Christ. Oh, I'll just go be. They if they could speak, they wouldn't want you there. This man does not want his brothers to come with him. And so he's got a missionary mindset, which is another bizarre thing. Here's evangelism strategies being formulated in hell. That's exactly what's taking place. The disagreement is not on the goal, but the methodology. In what means and method will we trust and rely to get people to bow the knee to Christ? Well, the rich man has a strategy. Let's hear it. The rich man pleads to his bro- for his brothers. And so he cries out to Abraham to send Lazarus again. Lazarus, make a good errand boy, according to the rich man. I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that they, he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. He's at least got the message that there's no leaving hell. He can't volunteer himself to go, but, but maybe so. no such restriction is on heaven, paradise. So send Lazarus back to warn my brothers. And Abraham doesn't object to the goal. He doesn't say, no, that your brothers can fare for themselves. What is Abraham's answer? This is striking. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And then Jesus emphasizes the point. In case you don't get it, the rich man now, demonstrating again his lack of humility, rebuffs and rebukes Abraham, contradicts him. No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And what he's saying here, see the response Abraham gives is they have the scriptures. The objection is that's not enough. They need a sign to repent. They need a miracle to repent. Specifically, they need a resurrection to repent. They need eyewitness testimony from someone who's been there and seen it. That's what they need. The scriptures are not enough. No, Abraham, the scriptures are not enough. But if someone goes from the dead, then they will. That's, that's, so the rich man, his evangelism strategy, his mission strategy, is tied up in, in signs and wonders. It's tied up in this great miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead and then someone from the dead with firsthand experience to go talk to them. Then they'd repent. 
which also, by the way, recognizes the rich man's own acknowledgement of why he's here. He didn't ever repent. What does brothers need? They need to repent if they want to avoid hell. What do we need if we want to avoid hell? We need to repent and put our trust and faith in Jesus. So that's, that's the discussion. We all agree on what needs to happen. These brothers need to repent. The discussion is simply about what will bring that about. And Abraham's answer here is shocking. And I think challenges our confidence. Look at verse 31. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let that sink in, the implications of that. Can you think of a greater miracle than a resurrection of a known person? And the rich man somehow knows Lazarus' name, again, indicating part of his guilt. It's not that the rich man is unaware of Lazarus. He knows him by name. He just never gave him the table scraps. Presumably his brothers know him by name as well, and they'd know he died. And so if Lazarus came back from the dead, known to be dead, and said, let me tell you, there is an afterlife, there is a heaven, and there is a hell, your own brothers in hell, he is pleading through me, please repent. Don't end up there. Abraham says that would add nothing to the persuasive power of Scripture. Let that sink in. I told you Jesus is a radical inerrantist. He's also radical in his view of the authority and power of Scripture. Well, we got a few minutes. I want to just draw four points from this story. That's the story. That's the parable. Four things I want us to look at briefly. One, and probably most obviously this, mercy can only be given and received in this life. Mercy can only be given and received in this life. Both ways, the mercy that we can extend and the mercy that we can receive from God. The rich man is asking for mercy, not from God, but from Abraham. Will there be mercy extended in the afterlife between people? The answer is no. Maybe shocking. No. Abraham cannot extend mercy to this man. The people in heaven will not need mercy, and the people in hell will not receive mercy. Mercy between people is for this life, for this age. Whatever opportunities this man had to receive and extend mercy is over. He chose not to extend mercy to Lazarus. He knows him by name. He's in front of his gate every day, never gives him the table scraps, never invites him in. And the time for him to receive mercy from God is over. That's Jesus' whole point in the parable with the unjust steward, judgment is coming, just like a steward who knows that he's going to have to give an account and he's going to be tossed out on his ear. You want to urgently and with zeal prepare for that judgment and prepare so that on the other side of that judgment you are received and welcomed into your heavenly abode. And here we get a further reason. Because once you face that judgment, the time for mercy is at an end. And the God whose heart is like the father of the prodigal, the God who commands his people to have the heart like the good Samaritan, that God will not extend mercy after judgment. And neither will his people. Now is the day of salvation. Today. Do not delay. Don't say to yourself, I'll deal with this later. 
For as merciful and abundantly gracious as God is, once you stand before the judge and once the sentence is rendered, there will be no alteration, there will be no grace, there will be no mercy. That's the first, starkest, clearest implication of this story. Father Abraham, have mercy. I cannot, is the answer Abraham gives. It would not be right. You deserve what you have. It will be just. Notice the rich man does not plead his innocence. He doesn't plead that this is a this is too great of a punishment for him. He simply asks for mercy and he gets denied. Mercy can be given only and received only in this life. This is the only time you can be merciful. This is the only time you can receive mercy. So Jesus is encouraging us to be merciful, to make friends for ourselves with our money now while we can. Second, what is honored by man is an abomination to God. And Jesus is simply emphasizing the point he made back a little earlier in chapter 16. In verse 15, he said to the Pharisees, You are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And then Jesus tells them this story to make that clear. Here, here's the point. Don't make the mistake of thinking that your current standing around other people and in the culture in any way, except negatively, reflects your standing in God and his kingdom. This is a, rich, this is a man who would have been the envy of his community. This is a man who, who others would have looked as, oh, I wish I could have what he had. Wish I could be in his shoes for a day. And that carries no weight with God. Your and my social status and our situation among men and what other people think of us is irrelevant at best. And at worst, the likelihood is whatever men seem to honor, God finds base and abominable. This man goes from being the top of the social pecking order being tormented in Hades. This poor man, Lazarus, covered in sores, an outcast, a pariah, someone people would avoid and cross the street so as not to get contaminated by. He is at Abraham's side, reclining at table in the kingdom. We ought to care what God thinks, not what man thinks. And Jesus tells us in verse 15, God and man don't cheer for the same things. God and man are not impressed by the same things. You're going to have to pick whose approval and praise you want. Number three, closely following on the heels of number two. You can live for this life or the next, but not both. You can live for this life or the next, but not for both. Turn back to chapter nine. Jesus, preparing to go to the cross, speaks clearly to his disciples about his own impending death. Verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and on the third day raised. And he said to all, not just the disciples, not just the apostles, but everyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever 
loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus makes it clear. There's two approaches you can have to this life. You can hold on to this life. You can protect this life. You can feast this life. You can dress finely in this life. You can live for this life, protecting this life at all costs, enjoying this life. Or you can pour it out and let it go. And whoever saves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for Christ's sake will save it. Or as Jesus said back in chapter 16, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot live for this life and the next. You have to pick. That doesn't mean every Christian is going to be poor, but it does mean every Christian will be serving God, not money. You, you cannot live for this life and the next. You have to take your pick. This man enjoyed this life. He wore the best clothes. He ate the best food. He lived in the best house. Presumably, if he's like the Pharisees, he invited the best people over to his banquets and they invited them back in return. And he maximized his potential for this life. And he's in hell and in torment. You can live this life or the next, but not for both. And again, that's what Jesus has been drilling into his disciples. You've got to renounce what you have. You've got to pick up your cross. You've got to decide who you love more, your family, your children, your mother, your father, or him. You can't live for both. Finally, I only have a few minutes, but... We will talk more about this in a few weeks when we begin our series on the Reformation, about the authority of Scripture, but I'd like to say a few words now. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing can add to the persuasive power of Scripture. Nothing. And we think to ourselves, man, if we could just get some big-name celebrity, if Chuck Norris could come... You know, water, he doesn't get wet, water gets Norris Norris. Chuck Norris were to come, then people would believe. Now, I will grant you that Chuck Norris would draw a larger crowd than me. And so there is that. But beyond that, Chuck Norris or whatever Christian celebrity you want to fill in the blank, or flip it the other way, whatever powerful evangelist you've got, Billy Graham, then people will believe. Nothing upon nothing adds to the power of Scripture to convince. Now that is good news for those of you who want to share your faith. Because you think, man, I see Ravi Zacharias. I ain't no Ravi Zacharias. That's right, you're not. I'm not. <laughs> but it's not Scripture and Ravi Zacharias' wisdom that makes people believe. Jesus says here, clear as day, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I, mean, I remember that when that first sunk in. That means, I want you to take what Jesus says. That means if we went to the graveyard in Churchville and held a rally, an evangelistic rally, and we set up a big tent, and we somehow were able to get the entire community to come, and in the middle of the rally, lo and behold, someone's hand comes out, and some notable person in the community rises from the dead and appears, they put the microphone on, and it works, and they say, they say, believe me, there is 
A heaven and a hell. I've seen it. I've been there. Listen to Pastor Jeremy. Listen to Daniel. Listen to the elders. Listen to this. Please don't ignore this. Jesus is saying that would add nothing. Now, do you believe that? Or do we secretly believe, man, if we just got the right celebrity, if we just got the right, you know, the right um, you know, pitch, if he had all the answers to all the objections, People say, man, I just wish I could sit down and have a conversation with God, have a cup of coffee with God. It would do nothing. This has been echoing in Luke's gospel. What did Jesus say in Luke chapter 11? It is a wicked and perverse generation that seeks a sign. This generation is evil. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. What's the greatest proof that what Jesus said is accurate? His own resurrection. When Jesus rose from the grave, did the Pharisees say, oh man, I guess you're right? No, they did not. When Lazarus, in John's gospel, has to be different Lazarus because that Lazarus is rich. When Lazarus is raised from the dead in John 11, the Pharisees hear about it. They don't question it. In fact, they say, we gotta do something because this is such a notable miracle that all of Israel will go out and believe in him. They just simply put a hit out on Lazarus as well. In addition to Jesus. What that means is, if you have the Bible and you can speak God's word to somebody, you have the single most powerful and persuasive tool to bring others to faith. Faith comes by hearing, right? This is an absolutely radical statement about the power and authority of Scripture as well as how we ought to move forward and in what we should trust in our evangelism and missions. Because the discussion between the rich man and Lazarus is a, is a philosophy of ministry discussion. The goal is the same for, for Abraham and the goal is the same for the rich man. How are we gonna get these five brothers saved? The debate is over on what we will rely, what tools we will use. The rich man says, we gotta get some of that miracle stuff. We gotta get that resurrection. We gotta get those people from the dead. That'll do the trick. By the way, this also gives us some indication of how he ended up in hell. Even in hell, as much as he wants his brothers not to be there, he still does not have respect, love for God's word. But let Abraham's answer sink in. And then think of this. How does, how does Abraham describe the Bible? Moses and the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament. Why? The New Testament hasn't been written. How much more do we have this side of the cross with the testimony of the apostles added to that of the prophets? What the Old Testament is predicting, we see even more clearly unfolded in the word. God who spoke to us at various times and in various ways through the prophets has now spoken to us in his son. And we have that revelation. We have the single most powerful and authoritative tool to create faith in others which means you with the Bible are just as powerful and can be just as effective as Billy Graham, the greatest missionary in the world because it's the quality of the seed that is determinative. Faith is the work of the Spirit of God working in the human hearts, and according to James, we are brought forth, we are born again through his word. A lot more to say on that, and we will talk about that in a few weeks. The very first solas of the Reformation alone is scripture alone 
It's the formal principle of the Protestant Reformation. Will we look to and will we trust in church councils, papal decrees? The reformers were univocal in their insistence that only God's word, only God's word contained the truth. Only God's word could instruct the conscience. And only God's word was sufficient to make us wise for salvation. So Jesus lays out this story to warn the Pharisees of the reversals that are coming and to, to, to warn them that just because they're doing well now, just because they're sitting pretty now, just because they have the social status and acceptance and the prosperity now, there's no means promise that they will have it on the other side of judgment. There's warnings about what we do now, making friends, I refer to as the welcoming committee, preparing the welcoming committee to receive us into heaven, or to use the language of Luke 12, being rich towards God is of urgent priority for us. Because where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. It's not that we're saved by doing these things, but we show what we love, we show what we treasure, we show what we value, we show what we trust in, but what we do with our money and our time. We need to hear this warning, and we need to put our trust in Christ and his word. Let's pray. Lord God, we just, uh, we tremble at the thought that you are not a respecter of persons, that you do not respect or care for the things that we exalt. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would free our hearts you would free our lives from the fear of man and what man thinks, that we would be a people solely devoted to your praise and pleasure, a people solely devoted to pleasing you, that we would live as those who will face judgment, as we would live as those aware that our, our money and our mammon will fail us soon. Help us to live lives preparing for eternity, faithful, showing mercy, receiving mercy, now while we are able. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.